Hey, welcome to Pickled Parables. My name's Jesse. This week's episode is about Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. We're continuing our study through Galatians, and this passage is the next step of Paul's correction. Paul has argued that salvation, or more specifically, righteousness, is a gift from God that is received through having faith in his promises. Paul's used Abraham as an example and a model of how, quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, unquote. Now, using Abraham as an example was deliberate by Paul because Abraham's interactions with God predate the institution of the Old Testament law. And even it predates the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Neither of these things were in effect or even existed yet. So for the modern Gentile who received this letter, they would have hope to believe that salvation was not an exclusive offer. And the modern Judaizers who saw this letter, that they would have to admit that the father of the Jews, Abraham, was credited righteousness through belief. However, these Judaizers might insist that the Mosaic law was like a a new revelation for mankind that was meant to add something to what had already been established through God's original dealings with Abraham. So this is what Paul is specifically addressing in this passage. How does the Old Testament law change or affect the promises that God gave to Abraham? If this passage of scripture could be put into a question, the question would be, why did God establish the law? This is an actual question that Paul asks in verse 19, but he asks it so that he can present the answer. You see, the the difficulty for the recipients of this letter was understanding the reasoning of God's actions. The Galatians were being uh, persuaded, maybe even coerced, to accept certain practices and observe certain observances. And they were being told that that these things were integral to their salvation. So Paul is defending, he's correcting, and he's making things clear so that these inaccurate teachings would be revealed for what they really are, inaccurate. So Paul has explained the means and he's explained the method of obtaining righteousness and salvation. That was covered in chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Now, in verse 15, Paul moves to address the effects that the Mosaic law had on the Abrahamic covenant, if there were any effects. So he says in verse 15, to give a human example, my brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The first thing I want to make note of is that Paul addresses the Galatians as my brothers. Now, we've, we've talked about this a couple times already, but again, let me remind you that this is not a biological relationship or even a, a friendly term of endearment. This is specifically mentioning the relationship that believers have entered into by the adoption of God the Father through the payment of Jesus Christ. As sons and as daughters of God the Father, we are sealed with his Holy Spirit. We are given, just as we were given grace, we we are given the Spirit of God to live in us, to live with us, and to align us 
more into the will and into the image of God. Paul is calling them brothers, and in the Greek language, this this word would include sisters as well. Think siblings. So Paul's using this term to remind them that they were adopted. Adoption, it's not initiated by the person being adopted. There is a need. Adoption meets a need. These Galatians were needy because they could not earn a right standing before God. But God the Father initiated. He he worked for it. He pursued them, and, and he gave to those who would take it the gift of right standing. Before God, these men and women, these brothers and sisters, were children of God. Now, pay attention to the language that Paul uses, because he he is in a very intentional state of mind right now. He, he's using words with purpose. So again, I'll read verse 15. To give a human example, my brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul's setting up an example. And I want to be clear. I want to clearly communicate with you that when Paul says, to give a human example, it does not mean that, that this coming example is uninspired by God's divine direction. It doesn't mean that. Paul is simply stating that he is offering an easily understandable and a common practice that the Galatians would have been aware of. This human example had to do with official and formal promise makings. Once a promise, or a, I guess you could also say a testament, what once it was made, it was settled. And additions couldn't enter into this formalized and sealed deal. So Paul takes this example and he applies it to his next statement, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring. This is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, let's uh, let's open this suitcase up because there's a, a bit to unpack. Here's something I want you to be aware of. Uh, in the Greek language, offspring, or it's quite, it's just literally, it's it's seed. Think of the promise in Genesis, the seed of your loins. It, it was often used in the singular form to refer to many. And Paul would have known this. They, they had a translation of the Old Testament in Greek called the Septuagint, and that is, that's how it was used. Now, I, I want you to be aware of this so that I can direct your attention to what Paul is actually trying to say. Again, Paul is being very intentional with his words, and the translators who have taken the Greek and put it in the English for us they, they've really tried to keep that intentionality. So this is what Paul's doing. He's targeting the seed of promise. Think back to Genesis 15, chapter 15, chapter 17. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I will die childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household, he will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, No, this man will not be your heir. What will come out of your own loins shall be your heir. And in chapter 17, again, Abraham said to God, Oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. Now, Abraham had eight sons, but only one of them carried God's promise. And so it was carried with Isaac, and then the promise also continued through Jacob. Now, Abraham had more than one son, but only one of his offsprings carried the promise all the way up to Jesus Christ. So the, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. So that's why it's singular in this case. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, well, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the law came after the promise had been established with Abraham. It had been reaffirmed with Isaac, of Abraham's son, and it was reaffirmed again with Jacob, his grandson. The covenant that God had made with Abraham and like established, it was made, it was established and reaffirmed three times. <laughs> so Paul says, if the inheritance, if, if receiving the promise comes by the law, meaning like keeping the law, then it no longer comes by promise. These two things conflict. They, they don't add up. They don't fit together. So Paul asks, why then the law? Why was it established? Why was it put in place? I, I guess another way of asking this could be, what is the law's purpose? Paul explains in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the law, we'll, we'll go step by step here. The law was added because of transgressions. Okay, well, what does that mean? The law created the understanding that mankind is in desperate need of salvation. But it was only put in place until, quote, the, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, end quote. 
Meaning, the law was meant to be temporary until Jesus Christ accomplished its purpose. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. By measuring ourselves to God's standards, we can clearly see that we are just not tall enough to ride his righteous roller coaster. We are incapable. We're unable. We are destitute because of what the law revealed. But through Jesus Christ, the law was accomplished and the promises were made manifest. Now, we get to sit on Jesus' shoulders and through Jesus' intercession, we get to ride the righteous roller coaster. Now, there, there's something interesting in this verse. It talks about intermediaries and, and angels. And it's interesting because we, we don't really know anything about it. But it's apparent that the people of Paul's time in the first century, they did. Stephen made a similar statement in Acts chapter 7, and it's also mentioned in the epistle to the Hebrews. Here, I'll, I'll read both of these passages so, just so we can be aware of them. Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, <clears throat> You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. And Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, the, the intermedi intermediary, that, that's Moses, the intermediary that's mentioned. He stood between God and the people of Israel because, well, the people of Israel were terrified of God and they begged Moses to just talk to God for them. So we have angels and an intermediary setting up the covenantal law. But we don't have any of that when God established his covenant with Abraham. Verse 20 says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God established his covenant with Abraham. No one stood in the gap. No one interceded. It was a personal promise from God to man. So Paul asks in verse 21, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law didn't give righteousness. It, it actually brought a curse because of its goodness. 
the sinfulness of man was revealed in a, a, a stunning light and it entrapped people because of a humanly unattainable standard. It, it imprisoned everyone under sin. The law fortified the, the only way of receiving righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law was to reveal to those under it their state of condemnation before God. Only when mankind reaches the the realization that we are condemned by God's righteous and holy standards because of our sinful natures, only then can we stand in complete honesty and accept the promise which God offers through Jesus Christ. The function of the law was in no sense a competition to the covenant which promised righteousness by faith. It was God's structured instrument to show mankind's absolute need for his promise. Righteousness only comes by God, and sinners receive it by faith. The Mosaic Law did not supersede or even amend the Abrahamic Covenant. It was the means for the the early Israelites to experience the blessing of God's promises and to be holy priests, a a holy nation before him. But rather than being a blessing, it, it became a curse because it entrapped mankind under a standard that we could not individually achieve. The law revealed a deep divide between mankind and God, which set in place the understanding that we needed someone to stand in the gap and help us. The law helped prepare the way for Jesus, as it says in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. The law was the best thing that God ever gave Israel because it revealed his heart, it revealed his worldview and his desires. Now we're, we're able to look back at the law now with the appreciation of Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross, but we shouldn't disparage the law. Even though it's not regulatory for us today, it's still revelatory. We can learn so much about God through his law, but we should understand that it was meant to show the necessity of Jesus.